you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. cannot settle on one description and i mean honestly i've I've taken a page from you and others who have written about the show um and so i'll say it's like a cartoon except you listen to it i'll say it's a documentary food show if i'm talking to someone who knows me i'll say it's like taking a trip inside my mind anyways what's that you want to go for a walk oh you think we should do a definition of what a cornichon is for those who may not know good idea girl you want a belly rub there's a good girl. There's a good girl. Good girl. This is Richard Parks III, host and creator of Richard's Famous Food Podcast. Which is a pretty hard show to describe. It's kind of a food show. It's kind of a cartoon. But whatever it is, it's one of the most fun and interesting podcasts you'll ever hear. And I think it's the kind of thing that could never be made by a major podcast company. I was looking to make something that I didn't hear, you know, out there in the world that I felt like would appeal to me and others too. Um, honestly, it, in the beginning, <laughs> it wasn't just for me, um, but that's changed. From Elia Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. On this episode, when making a podcast is just about having a ton of really weird fun. At its core, Richard's Famous Food Podcast is a food documentary. Every episode tackles a different food subject, whether it's wine, truffles, or bone broth. But what you get isn't a simple accounting of a history or a profile or anything like that. You get wild tangents, weird fictional characters, and a lot of zany energy. The narrative doesn't necessarily follow a linear path, and storylines don't always see themselves through. But honestly, the sum of it is completely entertaining. I, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing when I when I make this show, but I've I've figured out the feelings that I would like to repeat that I'm you know looking for, and and I've given in to what it is. You know, yeah. I'm not trying to make it something else anymore. I'm not trying to make it something that fits in, uh, and that took some you know a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. My background is uh, I guess I would have called myself a journalist at the time. My first. <laughs> thing that I did out of college when I was 22 years old is I went to West Texas and made a documentary film with some friends. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, I started as a cub reporter at a small newspaper. And then after that, I became the editor of that newspaper. And then I was the editor of two of the newspapers in this small newspaper group in the Bay Area. First day on the job, I was given a Rolodex. The computer was not connected to the internet. And the editor said, <laughs> you're writing three things today. And I was, you know, terrified. But 
in doing that, I learned a lot about journalism. And, mm. and so it was always between film and print. But in working on films, I had developed a fluency with audio equipment. And, and so I felt like I can do this. There is an explosion in podcasting. Who knows? Maybe you make one really good episode and that's about all you have to do to kind of like, then you're established. And I don't know what I was thinking. Anyways. To really explore the ethos behind the show, I wanted to focus on how Richard thought through one episode. Cornichon's quest. In the episode, Richard travels to Paris, literally, to learn more about the history behind a tiny pickle with the extra tart crispiness. But instead of getting the story of the first documented cornichon or something like that, Richard creates a character, Jimmy the Cornichon, based on his real-life nephew. In order to fully appreciate Cornichon's quest, you have to get the backstory from the previous episode. Let's jump in there. Jimmy and I are in dialogue, and it doesn't really matter what's happening, but the pod god shows up, who is the deity, who who is the ruler of the on-demand audio universe in my show. And so he shows up, and there's like too much frivolity going on, and he kidnaps Jimmy. And he says to me, <laughs> I'm going to kidnap little Jimmy Piglet. Oh no, that's me! Don't figure out a way to do a real canonical RFFP with that signature mix of real reporting, sound design, and original music we've not yet heard. I'll serve Jimmy on a piece of a crusty baguette smeared with some pate de So that's what preceded the episode. Another thing that I think about in in storytelling and particularly where it pertains to the sort of more whimsical aspects of my show and the characters Mm -hmm. is something that I think William Saroyan said. I'm probably going to bowdlerize all of this. I hope that people are looking this up and finding that I'm very much wrong. But somebody said, and I think it was William Saroyan, all of storytelling is just get the cat up the tree and then get the cat back down the tree. That's a story. And so (laughs) I had this trip planned to France a rare European vacation, first time in 20 years. And I knew if I'm in France, that's, you know, a good place for gastronomy and I should probably take my microphone and, and when I can, as long as I don't completely alienate my uh, vacation companion, who's also my domestic partner, record things here and there and maybe piece together an episode. <laughs> so the episode that precedes Cornichon Quest is me getting the cat up the tree and just saying, you're going to go to France you're going to have to do something because France is the birthplace of gastronomy, of modern gastronomy and sort of Western, you know, continental food. It's a very important place for food. That's where Cornichon is from. And and so if you go to France, you're going to find a story is what I'm telling myself. And in doing that episode and putting it out, I challenged myself to actually do it. That's like what a lot of the fictional aspects of the show do for me. For me, it serves a practical purpose that Mm. there are these external things challenging me to make another episode because to be perfectly honest every single time I make an episode I think about never making an episode again because it takes (laughs) a lot of work and it takes me as joyful as it is it's also psychologically demanding I am not exaggerating every time I make an episode I wonder if it will be the last time but in setting up that episode I challenged myself no now you have to do it so I got the cat up the tree and so, you know, one of the more interesting aspects about that sort of episode, after you're sort of finding, trying to find a cat in a tree to stick the metaphor, is like you do kind of commit to this gonzo bit. Like you, you go <laughs> to the street and you ask people, like, where's, where's the pickle, right? Um, yeah. I'm just going to play that clip. Monsieur Dan, est-ce que vous connaissez le condition qui s'appelle Jimmy? Uh, no. 
Non Ok, merci. Très bien. Est-ce que vous avez, vous, cette grande échange Yep. Madame, est-ce que vous connaissez cette piclée Non. Non Non, pas du tout. Je suis désolée. Est-ce que vous aimez le cornichon Ah, si j'aime le cornichon Oui, oui, oui. j'aime bien. Vous êtes française Oh, oh, oh. Go, go, go. Jimmy Jimmy Où est Jimmy I'm just like curious as to what possesses a person to ask random people in the street in a country you're not from for for what is essentially a fictional aspect of a podcast. Commitment to the bit, you know? Um, <laughs> look, I am willing to make myself look ridiculous to fulfill things and create moments that you're not going to hear anywhere else, you know? Mm -hmm. I just, I care about it that much. I, I, I love it that much. And I yes, I am willing to go down to the banks of the Seine River, where I literally was recording that. And I asked people in my broken French, where is Jimmy? Have you heard of Jimmy the Cornichon? <laughs> Sounded like somebody responded in Russian. Niet, I think he said. Uh, but you know, this is a high tourist area. So um, I knew I wanted to create some moments. You know, I guess in that episode in particular, that's one of the episodes where as a host and as a, you know, quote unquote reporter, I am a little bit more in character than than I normally am because, you know, I've written for newspapers, as I said, and, you know, I've written about news for the New York Times. And like when I go interview for my show, I mean, obviously the topic is a little bit different, but generally I operate the same way as I always have. If I'm making a movie, if I'm getting quotes for an article, and I think it's that early experience as a journalist in a small town when I was 22 and they didn't even give us the internet. You have to go hit the pavement And it's the most mortifying thing ever to do for the first time, to pick up the phone and call someone or to go approach someone on the street or to go chase a fire engine and, and talk to people. It's scary. But like, I think that it's probably that experience that I'm reminded of when I hear that tape. Mm. And I just knew that I wanted to get some, some reactions. Yeah, does that excuse it? I don't think so. <laughs> Est-ce que vous aimez le cornichon? Oui, oui c'est bon le cornichon. J'adore ça. Because here, it's not just an obscure pickle. It's a point of national pride. Une importante chose pour France, oui? Ah oui, oui. Ah ben, les cornichons, c'est très français. En France, on aime tous les cornichons. I think you, you have cornichons in uh, every French house. And like Ludo, everybody knows what makes a good cornichon. Ah ben, il faut qu'il soit frais dans le frigo. Tout petit, c'est les meilleurs. La texture, elle est croquante. Like, um, crunchy. Crunchy, yeah. Croquant, croquant. Et croquant As a pickle obsessed podcast host whose logo is a mustachio picle, I feel right at home. Est-ce que je peux donner vous mes cartes? Oui, je peux. Ok, c'est moi. D'accord. Mais okay. comme un cornichon, <laughs> c'est le logo de ma podcast. D'accord. Ah, super. But I'm not here to network. I'm here to find Jimmy, oh, the most oh, special oh, cornichon oh. in the world. And I hear if you're looking for cornichon in Paris, the place to be is Maille. Le meilleur cornichon. Ah ben, c'est la marque Maille. Je préfère ceux de chez Maille. You will find your happiness there, I think. It sounds like a lot of what was driving you creatively with the podcast is sort of this frustration with um, conventions a little bit. Um, wondering if if this is if the podcast is kind of like your way of working through a couple of those like frustrations. I mean, I'm cowed by the excellence of conventions, you know, that I see pulled off in other shows or, you know, in things that I really like. A lot of podcasts I really like, I don't necessarily take inspiration from because I'm worried that I can't pull it off or I can't do it, especially on my own. I don't know. Mm. But, I, but I do have a very fraught relationship with convention and I always have. But I think that that 
uh, sort of manifested itself differently in like the 19 year old me than it does in the 38 year old me, you know, who makes mm. this show. Cause you can't just like sit down at the piano and be like, I'm going to make amazing music, but like, I don't need notes. I don't need chords, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to, I don't need to like hit these keys. I'll just bang on the lid. It, that's not really how it works. Uh, I think you have to have a reverence when you're approaching a form that takes a lot of expertise like Mm -hmm. a storytelling podcast, which I really still kind of am holding on to the belief that maybe my show still is. And I think you have to like love it, but, but you want to play with it because maybe because you're, you're a little bit self-conscious when you're doing it, you know, maybe because you, you don't think you can pull it off or maybe when you do it, it it doesn't come off, you know, it doesn't ring true. And so Mm -hmm. what does ring true? And I think a lot of my show is also, it's sitting here working and working and working and working, you know, for days and weeks on end, um, on like sort of the sound side of things and and these feelings of like self-doubt and you know it, I think it comes from working alone you know which you're always working alone when you're editing and so th- all these things are they're just based on my own personal experiences that's all you have when you're alone here working you're a monk you're alone you know so it feels like the way you use these characters they're like they're essentially plot devices that carry out ideas about the stuff that you're reporting on yeah so how do you how do you make the choice of creating a character within a context of any given episode? I think generally it it is about that relationship to convention. I know at some point that I'm going to have to define what, you know, the topic of my show is. But mm. I start to feel self-conscious about, you know, I'm going on too long here and it's too dry and it's um, there's got to be another way to do this. How can I do this convention or this cliche in a way that only I can do? What are my ideas? And how do I serve what I'm doing in the whole piece by doing that? If I can kind of do all those things, then I've used, I've honored, I think, the convention of other shows and and storytelling in general Hmm. by doing the convention, but I've brought it into the world of my show, made it something that you will only hear on my show, and hopefully I've put a smile on your face. You know, if I can do those things, then I've checked every box, and I don't always do it. I try to only do it when it serves the story, but, you know, Jimmy... Jimmy is the MacGuffin, you know, it's like the thing that propels the story forward, both behind the scenes for me, and also it's just a framing device that, you know, I set up a question in the beginning of the episode, it's very simple, and and answer it in the end. But other shows do this all the time, I'm just doing it in my way. Time to go to the My Boutique in Paris, A lot of Americans uh, who come to Paris come here. Back at the My Boutique in Paris, I feel like I've asked Valentin enough softball questions. Um, Have you heard of a cornichon named Jimmy? Jimmy? No. (laughs) No. I don't know. That's you? (laughs) Maybe. Jimmy is my nephew. Yeah? Okay. (laughs) No, I never heard. So you don't know where he is? I don't understand, actually. We're all pickles. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, nice. Anyway. So, uh, let me see if I got this right. So, like, you have a standard radio story. Let's say it's about a pickle, right? And then the thing about a way normal radio stories conduct itself is that it's sometimes very slow. It has to find excuses to get you interested as the listener. Uh, whether it's newest hook or something like that. But within your context, it sounds like you can just create a cartoon and lay it over and it would serve the same machinery of getting the sort of journalistic part forward. Does that sound right? I think that's absolutely right. 
Yeah, there's no reason why not. You know, I really, I, I know that it's off-putting to some people, but I, I, I don't understand why there isn't more of this type of thing <laughs> in the world. So tell me more about that. Like, I, I'm curious as to, because I'm instantly thinking about that sort of thing that people keep sort of saying about certain kinds of art, right? I think, um, you know, some shows in Radiotopia does this. I think The Heart does this sometimes. Uh, Love and Radio does this sometimes, where, like, there's this blending of the fiction and the nonfiction. And yeah. there's this, it's a kind of sacrilege that happens with that. Right. I'm curious as to why it's off-putting. I mean, obviously, it's not off-putting to me. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm the right person to answer that. More on Cornichons in a minute. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Let's get back to that Cornichon episode. Fed up with Valentin's question dodging, I take my search to a smaller Parisian culinary store, J'ai de Tout. Je cherche l'histoire. Du Cornichon? Oui. I share a snack with the lady behind the counter. Peut-être uh, je vais ouvrir ça maintenant. Et on croque Et... un Cornichon? Oui. Ah ouais, c'est super. Okay. Ça, c'est une bonne idée. En- Enchanté. Enchanté. <laughs> and then uncover an alarming truth about the contemporary cornichon. Uh, nos cornichons, on en a deux types. Because on here, she tells me, as everywhere, there are two types of cornichons. Those made in France, and there are not many of those. And then, the ones made in India. I know. It turns out these days, due to the high cost of labor and production, most cornichons are produced in places like Eastern Europe and India for a fraction of the price they would be in France. It's a classic story of globalization. France's farmers fought it for as long as they could. The front line in this battle includes miniature pickles. Cornichons. I can't believe that public radio got to this story already. Now cornichon farmers are learning to compete with producers from countries like India. Damn you, Tess Viglin! I'll get you for that bedline! So there's the story and the information Richard wants to get across. And then there are the cartoonish characters like Jimmy. But then there's another level of oral chaos going on. Like the anyways you heard earlier. Anyways. So why do you do that? You know, it's like we all kind of say that when we've gone too far or ended up in a place that we don't recognize or just ended up on a tangent that we hadn't anticipated. I should be saying it a lot more in this interview. But when we say these verbal tics, like oftentimes we, we musicalize them. There's other examples of this. Uh, you know, if I said, now, I want to tell you about how I make my show. Now, 
Like, that's a verbal tick, like, anyways. It's, it's a kind of, it's a question. Uh, I mean, there's punctuation points. Like, I, I'm struggling to think of more examples, but I think anyways is a common one. And so, yes, like, as you say, to underline what is kind of absurd about it, and almost to put in, like, bold letters what I'm doing here, like, I just went on a tangent, like, this is not important, let's get back to the matter at hand. I said it again, and I put a little hmm. vocal harmony on it. And then after that, I was like, well, I'm not going to do that again because I can't repeat myself. <laughs> uh, and so in making subsequent episodes, I was like, I'm not going to make any ways a part of this. But then I, I gave into it in, in editing them, and it's become a signature of the show. I call it a catchphrase because uh, there are a lot of them, but they're not catchphrases. They're just normal words said differently in a way that I say them on the show, typically in silly musical ways like podcast and actually and anyways. And um, these are things that, you know, to take a cue from music, what they would call an opera, a leitmotif. Uh, God, I'm just like talking about opera and Orson <laughs> Welles. Someone smacked this guy. Well, I'm back from France. Empty handed. Empty house. No Jimmy. Empty fridge. Let's see what we got here. Got some sauerkraut, homemade yogurt, rye starter. Huh. Cornichon, of course. Guess I might as well. Um, Uncle Richie? Jimmy! I didn't want to disturb you while you are making your podcast! Woodcast? Woodcast. Woodcast! Yeah! As much as there is a frustration with convention um, and, and sort of like the formality of, of a lot of, of the, the, the medium, uh, there's also, it seems that there's, I, sound, I hear like a frustration with... Um, you know, the, the industrialization and capitalism <laughs> in general. <laughs> really? Uh, and, you know, my yeah. understanding of you, at least through this conversation and, and from what I've heard on the show and from what I've read, you seem like a like an artist at heart, like one of the rare, real diehard ones. And I'm curious as to, you know, what your relationship is with the notion of like the marketplace, as you call it, uh, and the notion of like what's been happening to podcasting more generally. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I have a job, right? And like, you know, like I, I make my money and, and it's sort of like the situation with the show right now is um, like the monks do in Buddhism. It's like chop wood, carry water. It's like you got to, you know, or like the monks that make cheese in Kentucky, it's, you know, and beer, like you got to sell that stuff and, 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 then, and then you keep the monastery clean and you meditate and because the whole point is to meditate on God or whatever, you know, and if art or a passion project food podcast um, also falls into that same category in terms of the reasons for doing it and how it is outside of the marketplace, then, I mean, I'm lucky that I am able to make it at all, right? Because it fulfills me. But I disagree with, you know, I, I've talked to people who, you know, have jobs and podcasting and stuff. And, you know, there, there's this notion that like, oh, it's an art project. And as long as you can do it at all, like, that's it. Just think of it like that. And I just disagree with that. I think that obviously what's going on in podcasting overall, and you've talked about it on this show, I've listened to this show and, and there's been discussion about this and I kind of can sense where, where you fall on this a little bit. And maybe, maybe we do think the same way about certain things. I, I mean, I'm like worried that it's not friendly to creators, of course, and, and in ways that are historic and endemic, you know, certainly in America. I mean, my father is a musician, you know, he came up through, the greatest time in the music industry when, as he likes to say, the, the sale of record albums were second only in America to the sale of legal drugs in terms of the money, the, the economy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the late 60s, that was the case, I guess. 
I mean, anyway, he says that. And, you know, and, and I know things from him about, you know, how contracts are written and how when you get money back on an album that you made that you owe the record company for making, you don't get it all. You know, you get a percentage of it. And it's a percentage of a percentage because of things like the, the breakage clause in, in record albums, which still exists. Breakage is something that was established when the technology was Bakelite, which was this this stuff that would, you know, uh, smash, you know, if you weren't careful with a box of Bakelite records, 78s, they would break. And so they had this clause the record company did uh, for they reserved 10 percent to cover the cost of reproducing those albums. That's called breakage. Breakage is still in digital contracts today. <laughs> like that's that's nuts. <laughs> what are we talking about? Vinyl fixed that problem, you know, in the 40s or whatever. So. I'm familiar with how the industry is unfriendly to the artist. This is nothing new, but I would hope that there would be some room, you know, for different kinds of business models in podcasting than the ones we have now, where ads are sold on a CPM basis, you know, per thousand impressions, or there are these sort of these like, you know, what I call the podcast Medici, you know, and it's like, if the podcast Medici sort of blesses you, you know, then that's another way forward or, or, or public mm. media. But I think that a lot of public media organizations are looking at what they're doing. Why have we been doing podcasting? And <laughs> what, what's coming back? And, and, you know, at the end of the day, all of these places are businesses, right? But I think it, it takes creativity on the business side to figure out how shows like mine and a lot of other shows that are independent right now will survive or be sustainable or mm. come out more, which they have to. I can't make this show every week. I mean, I would if I could. One last question, uh, just to wrap it up. What are you listening to right now? Oh, yeah, that's right. I knew this. I <laughs> you knew this I, was I, coming. And I, no, and I did not. Uh, <laughs> in terms of podcasts, uh, we're, yeah. we're talking podcasts, right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I really like A Woman's Smile, but like, do you know that show? I do, but talk to me about that. Last year, actually, after you wrote about my show, obviously, it was like all of a sudden I I heard from a lot of people about my show. And I kept on hearing in the same breath about a woman's smile. And have you heard George's podcast? And a woman's smile is is just aggressively strange. The world is filled with different beliefs, cultures, people. But one thing is unclear. Where do we go when we die? What is there beyond? When we cross over. Is there anybody in the sky? Today we'll be talking about these things and more. I'm Patty. And I'm Lorelai. And this is A, A Woman's, Woman's Smile Explores, Explores the, the Paranormal. paranormal. Uh, and, <laughs> and completely fictional, but then there was even an episode that I was listening to a while ago that I think was from the second season where there was a series of ads, like as if there were like three mid-roll ads, you know, in a normal podcast. But like, I think two of them, I'm pretty sure were fake. And I think one of them was real. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I got to use that. Like, you know, like, um, I really liked that. Um, it's very bizarre in an off-putting, but somewhat charming way. And it's like that kind of thing where like if, if you put it on, like you do not know what's going to happen or where you're going to be taken. The first episode I listened to, I had to pull over the car. I was laughing so hard five minutes in, you know, but then I was like deeply disturbed like five minutes later. <laughs> and so I, I appreciate the effort to make something like that. Richard, thanks so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for all of your thoughtful questions and for all you've done to, to bring attention to this, this weird little show. I appreciate it so much.
Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Jessica Alpert and John Parati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Christian Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Elias Studios. Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com sweeps.